Just before we start, we all know that there's a problem in academia with people not getting paid for the work they're doing, particularly younger scholars. We at the project want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So we need your help to do that. If you can afford to donate £1 a month to support this project and keep it free forever, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash projectrs and sign up there. If you want to make a one-off donation, you can do that too through our PayPal button on the homepage. But together we can help to change the culture of exploitation in academia. That's patreon.com backslash projectrs. Now here's the episode. Welcome back, listeners, to the Religious Studies Project, coming live to your ears or to your transcribed reading eyes. Uh, from Edinburgh, my name is Chris Carter, and I am joined, as ever, by David Robertson. Hello. Hello, hello, David. How are you today? I'm pretty good. We are through the teaching year successfully, and um, the, well, importantly, the marking part of the year. Um, I am, anyway. You may still have some. And, uh, yeah, it's getting sunny outside. It feels good. Yeah, it does. Um, somewhere where it's always sunny is in New Zealand. Well, you know, I think they do get a little bit of rain there as well. But, um, Tom White's been speaking with Joseph Bulbulia on, um, I don't have the title. Is it Religion and Justice? Situating Religion Within Justice. Ah, good. Yeah. Take it away. <laughs> Cura. And once again, a warm welcome from the Otago University Recording Studios down here in New Zealand's South Island. Today I am joined by Professor Joseph Babulia, who yesterday evening delivered his Albert Moore Memorial Lecture, part of a series of lectures running this year to celebrate 50 years of religious studies at Otago University. Professor Joseph Babulia is the McLaurin Goodfellow Chair of Religious Studies at Auckland University and has been a prominent figure in the study of religion in New Zealand for the last 17 years. Joe received his PhD from Princeton, and is widely regarded as one of the pioneers of the contemporary evolutionary study of religion, and what has seems to me at least a vertiginous list of journal publications under his belt. He is also a co-editor for the journal Religion, Brain and Behaviour. A lot of Joe's research grapples with what we might call big data, and often involves assembling teams that are interdisciplinary in nature and typically involve members who are highly skilled in quantitative methods and computer modelling. Joe's research has included work on the New Zealand Attitudes and Values Study, which is a 20-year longitudinal study tracking over 15,000 New Zealanders each year, as well as the Polotto Project, which works from a purpose-built database of 116 Pacific cultures designed to investigate the evolutionary dynamics of religion. Joe is also a damn good long-distance runner. Joe, thank you for agreeing to this interview, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thanks, Tom, and thanks for the generous introduction. Not at all. Oh, really generous, uh, especially <laughs> when it comes to the running. <laughs> I, I, I've seen your times. They're, they're terrifying. Now, Joe, the title of your Moore Memorial Lecture last night was Religious Studies in New Zealand, the last 20 years. Or I should say, the last 20 years, because it's got a question mark at the end, hasn't it? Which reflected on the trajectory and prospects of religious studies in New Zealand. But I was hoping we could begin with how you started the lecture, which was to cage your understanding of religion within a concept of justice. You said, and I, I quote, I call religion and spirituality those features of nature, and we're talking about nature as that biology and culture, 
criteria or kind of definition that combine to cultivate a sense of justice in people. Can you please explain to our listeners what this means? Well, uh, every inquiry begins with a starting point, obviously. And I start with this question of how it is that we come to think about the debts we have to others, the obligations and duties we have to the people around us, friends, family, community members, colleagues, country, world, environment. And I want, and as well as the conceptions of what is owed to us as an individual, as a citizen, as a parent, as a son, a husband or wife, a colleague. And I want to understand how it is that we have these capacities. Nearly all of us have some sense of what we ought to do and what we are owed. And when we look to the history of humans at any scale, we see that there are institutions, beliefs, practices, texts, stories, habits, which combine in ways we still don't really understand to cultivate these sensibilities. And this marks human beings from other species. It is a unique, at least at the level uh, to which we express it, unique capacity in people. Also, when we look to history, we see that in the midst of these conceptions or at the foundation of these conceptions are beliefs about what we owe the gods or a god or the ancestors or our traditions and what we ought to do in light of those obligations. And of course, also what the gods owe us or give to us. That's part of every culture or nearly every culture. And it sits side by side with a whole lot else to cultivate a sense of obligation uh, and respect. And um, I put those together into a larger concept I call justice. In the past, there was a, a more sophisticated language involving virtue, in, uh, which would uh, decompose justice into elements. Uh, we've lost many of those elements of that older language. But I think most people can understand that, that justice sensibility. And I think if we don't, st- what happens if we don't start at that point? We can't even make sense of our commitments to, to the various projects and uh, people <laughs> and institutions uh, that occupy so much of our efforts in life. So I, I begin there, and uh, I think there are various advantages to beginning there, which we, I imagine we'll talk about in the course of this interview. Okay, great. So the idea here is that um, we need to embed our understanding of religion and religious practices within a, a foundation of this kind of broader ethical environment that we all need to understand our cultural practices within. Is That's that- right. Why, why is religion and spirituality interesting? And uh, in my thinking, why is it just not optional as a topic to study? Why might it be among the very most important topics that we should be investigating? Why are so many people around the world becoming interested in supporting research into this? Well, it's because there is um, an emerging recognition that the elements of belief and ritual, which to even to to religious and ritual practicing people might seem strange, uh, practices like uh, piercing yourself at a 
um, a, a, a ceremony venerating a god you don't believe in that might look very strange or a set of institutions that look to be completely inefficient and non-productive churches and temples and mosques they, they look to be marginal and uh, and, and, and outside of those traditional institutions, sports and music and perhaps entertainment or the Barbie, these kind of informal practices, the dawn celebration in New Zealand where we recognize and reflect on an appalling defeat in which a generation of young men were lost, that doesn't make any kind of sense unless we begin to see these practices as part of those elements which have combined to give us the kind of sensibilities that we have regarding our responsibilities and obligations to others. And once we begin to understand how those things to come together, they don't always come together in ways that are moral or ethical. So mm-hmm. I might have a conception of justice or obligation or right that is morally vicious, that supports slavery or supports genocide. Or But if that's so, I really want to begin to understand how it is that that those beliefs, practices, and vicious conceptions were propagated. Now, throughout the tradition of Western thought and Eastern thought, there are philosophers and theologians and historians who are reflecting on these practices and beliefs and presenting opinions and arguments about how we ought to reconfigure them in our own day to enable a virtuous society and community. And I, I think that that is important to begin the study of religion with that conception of justice, because when we start with the concept of belief, which is certainly mm-hmm. vital to understanding justice for so many people, it's because we have responsibilities and obligations to a god or the gods that we are called upon to act in the way we do. If we begin with belief, it Initially, it might seem as if there's some kind of binary division of people. You believe or you don't. Mm-hmm, well, that yes. doesn't, doesn't even make sense of these religious communities where there are debates about how we ought to respond in light of our obligations to a god or the gods or the ancestors. Those debates are impossible to make sense of with that kind of binary division. It makes it seem as if there's a, a great difference and gap between people who are not themselves committed to any god or don't believe in any god or spirit or ancestor or tradition and those who do. Uh, it makes it seem as if that gap is relevant to understanding people's sense of justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a wonderful and, and very influential uh, series of lectures on me were given by my f- former supervisor, Jeffrey Stout, at Princeton University, gave the 2007 Gifford Lectures where he goes into great detail documenting how it is that secular and religious people have stood hand in hand against secular and religious people on major issues of social justice. And his focus is throughout that lecture is mostly on on slavery. You can't even make sense of, of abolitionism without understanding how it is that conceptions of justice varied within secular and religious communities. Mm-hmm. They're very interested in that. Yeah, I mean, the um, when, when you presented this idea, the first thing I thought was, oh, Marx wouldn't like this, obviously seeing religion as this uh, opium of the people and an ideology that keeps the poor people down. But yeah. in terms of thinking about the way that uh, religious and secular organizations sit on both sides of that fence. You've also got liberation theology, which sure. obviously incorporates Marx and would 
very much present religion from that kind of ethical social justice viewpoint. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. And in, in Jeff's lectures, if I can make a plug for them, they're not published yet. When they are, I hope that people look, look out for them. He looks at those examples going back to Lucretius on the nature of things. That's a long tradition of people who have argued that religion is inherently unethical. It's inherently enslaving of the mind. It's a, it's a coil around the mind that mm-hmm. must be loosed and, that there is a tradition of thought going through you know, Nietzsche and, and Marx and Feuerbach that present presents that view. And that, of course, may explain many features of religious culture, religious institutions. It might be enslaving of the mind. They can give rise to appalling forms of injustice around us. I don't want to exempt you know, religious people. I don't want to claim that religious people are just and secular people are unjust. And it's quite the opposite. It's to, it's to really focus on those histories and to understand in my own work, scientifically, how it is that these, in, in, in local settings and in global settings, at various scales where the project remains the same, how is it that, that culture and biological endowment, nature, how is it that nature gives rise to these different forms? And I begin with the concept of justice also because it makes sense of the commitments of scientists. Mm-hmm. Scientists aren't outside of this. We have our set of what our set of ideas about what ought to be done, what people deserve in light of their dignity, in light of their possibilities. We have conceptions of how, you know, the relevance of science in in the curriculum, we believe that is enriching of people's lives, that they're owed that possibility. Uh, So uh, without beginning there, we we can't even make sense of ourselves, Mm -hmm. I think. And um, I think most people can have have a, a very clear understanding of any time someone hasn't returned an object they borrowed or has turned up late for an appointment or hasn't responded to an email, we might have um, a sense of not receiving something we were owed. Any time we feel guilty for you know forgetting to do something, forgetting to return an email or to arrive on time, we have um, an understanding of a, a relationship that's been breached. This emerges through a series of very natural experiences. I owe you something because you've done something for me and, and it's not, not magical. Mm-hmm. Um, our parents have, you know, for many people, parents have given us um, a set of conditions that ought to respond to with uh, a sense of acknowledgement and uh, the people around us help us in ever so many ways. We should be gra- grateful for that, but because of the help, it's nothing magical. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. And if, um, what are the differences within religious communities and between religious communities? Well, you have different conceptions of, how the world is. I have an obligation to my ancestors and I imagine them is still present with me. Maybe they are still present. I don't know. We don't make those assumptions uh, in the work I do, but nor do we uh, merely discount them as, as superstition. We want to just see how it works uh, in the first instance. Okay, great. Um, I mean, I think we've covered some of the ground that was going to relate to my next question, but we've talked about how perhaps with religious studies, we need to move from uh, kind of a framing context of belief to a framing context of justice. But maybe we could also talk about a little bit of the evolutionary study of religion to which you are a, a pioneer yeah. or a founder. Well, uh, that's um, nice. Uh, uh, the, um, well, um, the, on, the, on the role of religious studies, I, um, I think it, it has been a place where, there, where many disciplines have come together and organized their methods and capacities to explain features of how religions work, what they do for people, and ranging from ethnography, 
highly local, interview-based, qualitative research to what we're beginning to see now, very broad-scale historical database projects that are looking at the level of like societies, can't even begin to think about the people in them. And religious studies is interesting because it's been interdisciplinary before that was fashionable or before people mm-hmm. understood why that was interesting. It's a nice model for work that can be done. The capacity for work of teams that are united by a set of questions and have a different set of skills and capacities within the team to address a, a, a specific question. You need to know what your question is first, and then mm-hmm. you assemble the team and you uh, address it. And for most of the history of the discipline of religious studies, those teams have been composed of humanities folk and sociologists and some psychologists. And we're beginning to see shift into the, the natural sciences, the biological sciences, neuroscience, very large uh, environmental ecological uh, databases combining with these sort of interests to address questions of how religious cultures have affected human history. Um, But religious studies has been a place where that's taken, that many disciplines have come together. And I see that happening in the future. Whether we called it religious studies or something else is um, less interesting to me. The reason to keep the word religion and the reason to include the word spirituality is because it acknowledges the role of beliefs and rituals respecting gods. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that seems to be a part of the human condition. Um, it's part of New Zealand society. And um, I think it it's, needs to be included in the conversation. Then, you know, sort of thinking about evolution and the role of evolutionary biology within that interdisciplinary framework. Evolution, the life sciences from the time of Darwin and then after with the great integration of population genetics and evolutionary dynamics and uh, later the, the work on um, uh, of broad-scale kind of ecological studies, uh, we see um, a unifying framework for in which to place the work of people who are doing very different things from describing the, the flora of a particular island environment, descriptivists with um, you know, population geneticists who are work, you know, trying to work out the small-scale phenomena that give rise the mechanisms and processes that you know, kind of give rise to the diversity of life across regions to you know, increasingly neuroscientists and chemists. We have biophysics now who are involved in this, in this mix, looking at the emergence of life from physics. All the great achievements in the biological sciences have taken place because there is a kind of unifying framework in which to place the different work. That framework is um, beginning to be adopted within the human sciences uh, and within the study of humans. And the great challenge ahead is to integrate the work of historians and cultural scholars, anthropologists, into a, a framework that sees their work as uh, contributing to a gradual cumulative understanding of how people are. So we've seen a gradual cumulative understanding of how cells work, for example, mm-hmm. through the, the efforts of many people working over many decades and will be working over many centuries and probably still not get very far, but get somewhere. That hasn't happened in the study of humans. We have um, the brightest, some of the brightest people I know are in the humanities, the master of many languages, understand the a breadth of literature that um, takes 
decades, takes a lifetime to, to master, have these skills and contribute understanding and then it's lost. It, it just is sitting there in some book. It hasn't figured in part of a kind of larger organizing framework of inference about how it is that, that people are. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, the kind of great challenge of getting these people in linking them with the kind of the scientists who are able to do inference, but don't know anything about people and to um, achieve some cumulative or some, I guess, framework for cumulative incremental improvement of understanding about people. That's the challenge that's ahead of us uh, over the next several decades. And I'm very optimistic that those problems will be tackled. It's just the rate at which they, the achievements occur. I've been impressed by how fast things have changed. So you described me as a pioneer. I think uh, my in, in graduate school, I was a, cons- I was a fairly average student uh, and considered a bit uh, weird and flaky. I was lucky to get a job here. And when I got here, I was lucky to have colleagues who were tolerant of me just pursuing questions after my own fashion, but a bit ahead of others. And so um, that put me at an advantage when it came to um, broader global interest in religion in linking science with the study of religion. I just happened to be kind of doing that early Mm -hmm. because of the freedoms afforded to me uh, in graduate school and then when I got to New Zealand. Tying in with the the, the use of scientific methods to study religion and, of course, this uh, uh, other idea of religion being situated within a, a narrative of justice or understanding the role of religion within narratives of justice, it very much reminded me of well, some of the studies that you mentioned in your lecture last night, uh, exploring religion and altruism or religion yep. and empathy. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you've done on those themes? I, I've used these words like altruism and sometimes the word pro-sociality is uh, used. Some Empathy is a word that comes up. And we're thinking about how people are bound together. But it's very important to remember that some of the, the tightest bonds that people experience are when they are combating others. <laughs> so I don't want to paint a picture of, uh, you know, human history is one of, of a greater emergence of, of impressive, empathetic response to other people. That melts down all the time. And we see history moving in cycles of achievement and then collapse and with massive viciousness throughout that is supported through religious cultures and institutions in various places. So, um, but what are the great, what's the, why are we interested in, why is, why are humans interesting from a kind of scientific point, point of view, even abstracting from maybe an interest in justice, you might be interested in how it is that people work. What are mm-hmm. the programming languages of kind of culture? What are the programming languages that keep societies running? We, we just simply don't know. So when we begin to take an evolutionary framework, we, we can then, identify in the first instance what the problems are. What, why, why is it that people would cooperate when it's so risky to do so? Why don't we see cooperation very generally across um, the animal kingdoms, except among highly related species of insect evolutionary time depth of hundreds of millions of years? Well, it's because very specific problems need to be solved. Problems about predicting what other others are going to do, problems about figuring out what the motivations of other people are, problems about coordinating those motivations at scale so that the, so that people become predictable at scale, at the kind of scales we see where 
you're, you don't know others. You, you might not even see the partners that are responsible for the world around you, but you have to kind of trust in them. How does that all get coordinated? Um, then how does that coordination remain robust when it gets perturbed, when there is a breakdown of social order, when there's a collapse of the mm-hmm. society? How does it rebuild? Those are kinds of questions that we can address very narrowly and specifically through evolutionary dynamics. First, we can characterize the problem. And then my early work mm-hmm. was mainly theoretical. We characterize the problem, predictive confidence. How can I get predictive confidence from others? So, so how, how, what would the actual experiment uh, look like? Or, I mean, what would be the process for testing uh, these kind of uh, questions or thinking? Well, once we, be, once we began, uh, Darwin has a, a great sentence from his autobiography when he's describing walking with a naturalist Sedwick. He was, Darwin was a great, um, Darwin studied theology as an undergraduate, but he loved nature and hung out with biologists. And uh, they were in, I think, Cromwell, Idwall, and they're walking along the, the banks of these hills and um, looking for fossils. And Darwin ignored the great evidence of, of geological change around him the boulders that were strewn across the landscape, the vertical and lateral tormanes. And he, he, he said, had the glacier been president, uh, present, you know, its features, these features would be less obvious. You know, mm-hmm. he used the metaphor of something like a house burnt by fire did not tell its story as plainly as did this valley. Had the, had the glaciers been present, it would, it would have been less obvious that they were there. And to make the point that we don't know even what to look for when we begin describing the patterns of cultural human variation, both historically um, and culturally, cross cultures, cross cultures over history, and within cultures, within individuals, are patterns of variation. We don't even, you know, really even know what to look for in that variation mm-hmm. until we begin to think about. Well, in, in, in my own work, I became interested in very specific patterns of variation within humans because of a theory about human cooperativeness, by which I mean predicting what others are going to do so you can coordinate your activities to to get work that you could done that you could never do alone. That's what we see in, in people around us. Again, some of that work is quite vicious. It could be war. It could be murdering others. Um, how does that happen? Well, very specific problems need to be solved. So evolutionary dynamics, for me at least in the first instance, we're focusing on the, the very, I've talked in large and perhaps general terms about you know, how is it that people come together? How do we cooperate? How do we have a sense of justice? Those are very vague, vaguely formula- formulated questions. They, in science, yeah, how do we fix your teeth? It's a very vague, vaguely form- formulated question. What it amounts to, and I don't know anything about dental science, I probably should have pre- pre- predicted, but I think it amounts to a, a very s- specific set of um, of ideas of, of about how it is that tooth decay, how, how do teeth work? You know, mm-hmm. what, what, what are the physical properties? What are the kind of um, the sensitivities to d- uh, d- disease, to damage, to break down? How do you repair those? What kind of materials are available? You have all sorts of very, very, very. Mild. Does this material, you know, work better than gold or or lead or whatever it is that these put? You know, the ceramic material. You get these kind of very, very narrow questions once you start doing science. In fact, science becomes laser-like in its focus. So we have these questions about cooperation. How is it that people predict others? And that led to a series of questions about uh, specific ritual behaviors. So does moving together in synchrony and coordinated 
body responses, which we see across many rituals. For example, in military marching, we see patterns of, of highly coordinated activity. And we see descriptive responses of people feeling more at one with each other. We have whole ethnographies written and devoted to these topics. Uh, Neil Durkheim, you know, the founder of modern anthropology and, and sociology, is arguing that people come together in rituals to become united. So we begin to look at these features of body movement. And then when you begin to test them, you just vary, first in experimental conditions, moving together or moving randomly or moving in anti-coordinated patterns. And you begin to see through a series of interventions, do, become, do people become more cooperative? Do they tend to volunteer more with each other? Do they become more cooperative in their predictions of what others are going to do? And through a series of efforts, again, led by my PhD students, and we began to try to break those features down. And we could see, yeah, synchronous movement in combination with goal structures. And in natural human ecologies in New Zealand, we were looking at kind of religious groups. They tend, people who do that kind of thing tend to be more cooperative with each other. That mm -hmm. gives us a sense of, wow, this stuff that looks to be completely incidental and marginal has a, a, a utility in solving some of these key questions that need to get solved for people to become cooperative. Well, why is that important? Well, because what's the first budget to get cut when you, when a budget comes under pressure? It's like the, the budget for those things that look marginal. Yeah. You know, you, you, you cut the, 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 the mid morning, you know, the morning run or the, the tea or the, the kind of, um, community making efforts because uh, they look to be fringe. You know, we still have to meet our targets. What's the consequence of that? Can you, can you begin to see the gradual erosion of a kind of social order when you begin to perturb these things that look to be completely incidental and marginal? So that, that was some of the work we were doing at the level of individuals. And other work, again, I mentioned both the New Zealand Attitudes and Value Study and the Pilatu database. I'll talk about maybe the value study later. But in Pilatu, um, in a, a, a Royal Society of New Zealand um, supported project and also the Templeton Foundation, the uh, Pilatu um, database was created, led by Russell Gray and Joseph Watts uh, and Oliver Sheehan, who were all at Auckland at that time. Mm -hmm. And it was a purpose-built database of Pacific religious diversity to try to develop a capacity for testing questions about how the cultural variation of the Pacific, which emerged very recently, over 6,000 years, came together to um, are, are the patterns of variation across the Pacific consistent with specific models of what religion is doing for people? Yeah. So that's what we did. But you also mentioned the New Zealand Attitudes and Values uh, study. So it seems that you've, you've kind of got this double prong. We've got the kind of the laboratory kind of analysis of kind of how uh, synchronized movements can feed into um, greater levels of um, um, you know, altruism or cooperative cooperation between groups. But we're also doing like big data work. Uh, you you yeah. talked about the, um, the Pilotu, but the New Zealand Attitudes and Values Survey. I'm very interested to hear about kind of the, the problems of big data research or kind of, you know, what what new lights is that shedding on the the study of religion when we use these big data? So, so this, this was a project that was started by my collaborator Chris Sibley in two thousand and nine, and it's a project that was not created to study religion and is not primarily about religion. It's primarily mm -hmm. it's a general broad social psychological and health survey of New Zealanders that is given to the same New Zealanders each year over time, and that's um, it was Chris started it to better understand how it is that changes in attitudes and values 
and stability in those patterns affect employment, health, community growth, prejudice, those kinds of standard social psychological issues. And I do some work in that study related to um, religion. How do, how do beliefs and how do practices affect people over time? Mm -hmm. And, and, um, it is a very, um, we say big data, but each one of the individuals there is a human being who's donating some time to kind of tell us about themselves each year. And when I think about this subject, I just think about the amazing number of individual human beings that are summing to kind of tell us about themselves. And through that capacity, we are able to understand how, for example, natural disasters affect people and, and how do people become resilient after them? What are the factors that, that drive that? The, uh, um, the study, the most important limitation of large studies at, uh, or scientific studies at any scale is that it gives us inference. It gives us some scope of improved understanding with error bars around it. We, this might be happening. It might not be happening. We're trying to kind of shrink the error bars and improve mm -hmm. our ide ideas about these parameters or these questions that we'll, we'll never really get at. So science does something. I think it's a really important thing to know about it. It gives us something. We get even big data. We get lots of information about people. We're understanding history now like it's never been understood before by tracking it, by recording it, right? At the level of individuals, that couldn't happen before very recently. We're giving them the questions and still we're having a hard time figuring out how it is that, so for example, why is it that, that the country is becoming more um, nationalistic why is it at the same time becoming more committed to equality for women? You know, these kinds of questions re require explanation, but we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't get that from the data. We still have to use our minds. We still have to think with theories. We still need to talk to people. And um, it's highly limited. <laughs> for all the money and effort and, and time, we get some improved understanding, but not a lot. Um, but it's better than nothing. So I think cumulative understanding in science is worthwhile. It's... Uh, a frustrating and slow process in longitudinal data. The changes that take place in your life can change. And this is really decade long stuff. You know, it takes a while. You have a kid, you, mm -hmm. the kid grows up that, you know, you have a, you get married, you get divorced. Those sorts of things happen to people over a very long time. And you need a lot of people to really get an understanding of how that works. So I feel like, although we've been going on nine years now, that project really, um, the, the big benefits of that project will be maybe a decade away. Okay, so we, we've talked about the um, the more kind of laboratory uh, psychology of religion and the way that ritual can inculcate uh, cooperation. We've talked about um, religion within a narrative of justice. We've spoken briefly about kind of the the, the big data, kind of large um, quantitative analysis that can kind of feed a more society wide understanding of religious trends in New Zealand. Um, the study of religion in the next twenty years. How how would you kind of you know try and uh, distill those uh, experiences of research? Well, our, our crystal balls are a bit dirty. There have been wonderful opportunities uh, to conduct natural science and, and scientific psychological research in this country. A lot of it happening at Otago. I see more of that in the years ahead. I see a, a tighter integration of this research with the work of historians here and of humanity scholars, mostly younger, I suspect, you know, the rising generations, they get curious and have questions that they can see they can contribute to. I see more collaborative work that um, characterizes study in the sciences, less individual type 
um, emphasis in the study of religion and, and more teamwork. And increasingly across universities, so it won't be just Otago that's doing it or Victoria or Auckland, it'll, we'll begin to see these institutions that um, appear that sit between these universities. I think that would be very healthy for New Zealand. Um, and hopefully also with this some more applied work of the kind you're doing, we need to get the messages out. We need to clarify what that message is. And we need to in- inform people about uh, questions they might find interesting, like how is it, how is it that you get resilient after an earthquake? That's maybe something that people would want to know. How do you overcome what are the strategies and affordances of community for overcoming personal disasters and tragedies, losses, and so forth? Those are questions people have. How do you have a good life? That's um, what we want to yeah. begin to understand and then convey. And perhaps a very good question to finish on <laughs> yes. as well. Thank you very much for your time, Thanks, Professor Tom. Pabulia. It's been lovely to be here. Thanks. Thank Thanks so much to Thomas there. Yep, quickly becoming a stalwart interviewer. We're doing well over there, actually. Um, Brianne Fallon doing a great job in Australia as well. Yeah, um, we occasionally hear from Jack Sonis when he steps out of the sauna yeah, um, and pops his head over the parapet. Just uh, to, to flag up next week before we get on to another bit of chat, I've got another returning uh, interviewer, another prolific interviewer, Dan Gorman, who's been speaking to Jason Josephson Storm, who we had on the podcast a couple of years ago talking about the invention of religion in Japan. Mm-hmm. And um, he's been talking about a new project here. The interview is called From Static Categories to a River of Theories, The Myth of Disenchantment and Framing religious studies yeah i'm looking forward to this one that's um it's either just come out or just about to come out that a book called the myth of disenchantment um and it's you know that kind of idea crosses a lot of the stuff that i do and some of my colleagues at the open university actually so yeah yeah come back for that next week and do check out the previous interview i think it was brad stoddard um, spoke with uh, Josephson Storm about um, about the invention of religion in Japan. A couple of things to flag up. Uh, I, I had a really awful mention at the start of this interview about transcriptions. Uh, you'll know that maybe for at least the past year, we've been producing transcripts of all our new podcasts. We've also been trying to work through the, the archives. So um, we've had a transcription produced of one of our uh, sort of top top uh, downloaded um, original batch of interviews, George Cassidis on the Insider and Outsider Problem in the Study of Religion. So if you check out that page now, you should see a wonderful transcript there to help your digestion of it. And we do intend to keep that sort of stuff going in the future. Yeah, and thanks to everybody who's um, signed up for Patreon because essentially you're paying for that. So, uh, you know, thanks from us and from everybody else. Yeah. And that leads on to the other bit of, uh, bit of news. David and I have uh, just uh, signed off, hopefully, apart from maybe some copy edits on uh, a chapter that we've got in a, a book edited by uh, Christian Peterson and Chris Cantwell mm. on um, digital humanities and the study of religion. So actually, we are talking about about the RSP about podcasting and religious studies it's uh, yeah it's it's turned out quite interesting i think it's certainly the the fullest account of the history and um, particularly the last few years when you know beyond 
getting a podcast out every week, Chris and I's role has been much more in terms of developing infrastructure, which hopefully, mm. you know, you guys don't really see at all, but, are, you know, it's essential to the way that the, that this international team works. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So hopefully you'll be able to check that out and you can hear about, you know, you know, what is podcasting, but why we decided to podcast, how we do it, just in terms of the technology of actually making a podcast and all that infrastructure behind it. And then, um, some speculation as to the future of the medium and also some of those various critiques and challenges that we've experienced along the way. Another chapter in that volume was uh, Brent Plate, who we've had on the podcast before talking about um, massive open online courses. And he makes a very valid point in there um, about how these are perceived as, you know, free. They're free resources that are just out there for anyone to use. But that that whole discourse um, masks the huge um, capital investment in terms of money and uh, time that goes mm -hmm. into their creation. Mm -hmm. And although a humble podcast like the RSP is not uh, quite the same, again, there's this myth in a sense, you know, podcasts are free, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. But um, again, there's, there's a lot that goes in behind the scenes. And I mean, we're, you're probably with everybody who's involved. Every podcast is probably a hundred hours of labor, something like that. I mean, you're talking a few hours even just for the transcription, a mm. couple of hours for the interview itself and the organization of it, the editing, the response, the writing, the response, the contact and all this. I mean, it adds Maintaining up. Maintaining the website. And, Maintaining yeah. the website. You know, all of this stuff is t plus all the hours that have gone into being able to get to this point in terms of a system yeah. that makes it easier to do it. And then let's not neglect the actual you know the the interviewee has put all those of course yes into their research absolutely um absolutely. so yeah it's just worth just worth bearing in mind mm -hmm. um nothing is ever free in this world is it? <laughs> no we're you know but you know the sharing economy that we're moving into it's nice to give you know to contribute whatever you can if you can indeed uh but well and also just there's a lot of discussion in that book i think about you know, what would happen if if this was actually part of our like work time allocation? You know, if mm. the institutions might eventually start to realize that hey, maybe it should be well paying people. To be. In all fairness, I mean, some of my job at the Open University is doing this kind mm. of stuff, but you know, obviously, the Open University is is a, a fairly unique case in Britain. But a lot of these technologies, you know, the Open University is very much the tip of the sphere in in using these kind of ideas. So, yeah. yeah. So maybe it'll maybe it'll happen everywhere. We'll yeah. see. Excellent. We'll come back for um, Dan and Jason next week. But from us here, thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The RSP is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SCO 47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and our managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget.
forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at Patreon.com slash Project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. Thank you.